You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Revelation chapter 2, when you find that, I'd ask that you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. And I try to, uh, knowing that there are times and, and uh, that pastor might ask me to preach and maybe even with short notice. And uh, so I deliberately continuing going through these letters of the church in Asia uh, for the simple fact that if he calls me in a short notice, I can already direct my thought and mind to it. So I've already cleared one of the major hurdles when you're coming up with a message like, where am I going to preach from? Well, we already answered already answered that, so you'll get an extended long series, possibly, if Pastor Ever lets me preach again, uh, we'll have an extended long series, but we're going to continue looking at these letters to the seven churches here in Asia. We had looked at Ephesus, and we'll we'll mention that a little bit here in a moment, and now we're going to look at at the second, uh, second letter here. I want you to actually look at the last verse of chapter number one, and verse, uh, 20, it says, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven uh, churches, all right? So the angels or messengers of these candlesticks are churches. So in other words, these letters were being delivered to the leader, to the pastor, and I believe that's what it's talking about here. So those letters are being delivered, and it'll help us in understanding and getting the impact of uh, this, this second letter. In verse number 8, notice with me, the Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they, they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which, shall, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. But notice that in verse number 10 there, be thou faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. Don't fear, but be thou faithful unto death. Well, we're going to have a word of prayer, and we'll be seated, and we'll get into God's word tonight. God, I just thank you that that uh, you've given me an opportunity to open up the Word of God tonight and to preach it, to try to teach it, and to explain it to a group of people tonight. And God, yet in all my efforts, it will be nothing without your help tonight. So we ask for that. We ask for your Holy Spirit to illumine. And I pray also, God, specifically that you would apply your word to our hearts. Help us to be more than just hearers tonight, but help us to be doers of your word also. 
God, we're going to be careful to praise and thank you for your work tonight and give you all credit for all things that are done. And we just pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> well, we're going to, looking at this uh, second letter to the church in, in Smyrna, and it's uh, really a remarkable letter. And really, out of all the letters that were written to the seven churches here, here's the shortest letter out of all of them. But it, the, the length of the letter really doesn't diminish from the volume of truth which God conveyed in a very short uh, few verses here. And it's also unique and it should gather our attention because there are only two churches out of the seven that had no, uh, had no basically blemishes that Christ was trying to correct. They didn't have faults. They didn't have things that they needed to be admonished for. And the church in Smyrna was one of those churches. And that alone should make us stop and say, what is it about this church that I should be paying, paying attention to? And uh, being here in church on a Sunday night is really good because this is primarily church family. And so when you look at these, these letters here, we are then dealing with things that would definitely be applicable, things that would be relevant to us as, as a church, even though that these churches were some time ago, the truth uh, still is eternal and it still remains the same. So the things that were going on in these churches, the truth that Christ was trying to apply to them is still very much real and relevant to us today. And what we see then here in this church will be very relevant to us uh, today. So as we look at this, I was uh, reminded of a, of a quote, and then I looked it up, and it was said in different ways by different people. And one of them was um, uh, Benjamin Franklin. And Bren Benjamin Franklin, think of where have any kind of basic understanding of American history, we wouldn't say that was a remarkable man. I mean, truly a remarkable man. One of our founding fathers, uh, an inventor, uh, a, a massive statesman, if you put it that way. I mean, here is somebody obviously we look up to because if I had a bill that was large enough, he would actually be on my, on my money in my pocket. But I don't have one of those in my pocket. But he has actually made it to, to, our, to our dollar bill, our, the $100 bill. And, uh, but I believe when we look at his life, he made a quote and a statement that I really think is at the foundation of really what made him who he was that made him that you could look back and say, here's a man of achievement. How did a man like him, and just an ordinary man, achieve to levels that maybe other people did not achieve? And he had made this quote, and maybe you've probably heard this quote, but in a different way. Uh, but he said this, and he's attributed it as saying this, by failing to prepare, you prepare to fail. Now that's a great statement by uh by failing to prepare, you prepare to fail. That is a true, very, very true statement. And you look at his life, would you say, by human and worldly standards, would you say his life was a failure? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I would say no. I mean, we are still reaping the benefits of the works that he did a long time ago. And so I would have to say then, if I would look at that, here was a man who didn't get to where he was by accident. He was a man who prepared himself in such a way that he could 
uh, achieve what he, what he accomplished in his life. I don't think he could get up there and make that kind of statement and say, okay, that uh, I never prepared and all these things just happened by chance. I, I don't think he would have dared to make a statement like that. And so the difference really then as we think about that statement that he made, the difference between failure and success many times can be attributed to one thing, that's preparation. That really the difference between whether one fails or one succeeds is whether we prepare ourselves for it. And it is, it is something that whether we conscious of it is something we see and we experience, I experience all the time. I've you're a young person in here and you're still in school and you have a test coming up, I, I would venture to say, if you do not study for that test, I would not give you a lot of credit in being successful in that. And if you are, I wouldn't say that's going to be the norm for you. If you don't study for your test, when I was in college, if I didn't study for my test, you know, generally the outcome wouldn't have been very good for me. We, we think about planning and preparing, and uh, I'm thankful that, uh, just to remind you that the Chiefs did win the Super Bowl, and, uh, well, some of you might want to forget that, but it's something that needs to be rehearsed over and over again. And, uh, but can I tell you this? They got to that point by not doing anything. They didn't get there by sitting there and go, well, you know, the season's going to start, and they just decided to get out there on the field that day, that first Sunday, they decided, well, we're just going to get out there, and we're going to go out there, and then they start winning games by doing nothing. We know that's not the case. They have a, even from now the Super Bowl is over, and you hear them talking about it, they have like two weeks off, or three weeks off, and you know what they're going to be doing? They have, uh, they have uh, off-season training taking place. They have different camps coming up here. They'll have a little break in the summer. But even when they have their breaks, you know what these guys are doing? They're lifting weights. I'm, last year, uh, they had a whole bunch of new wide receivers for the Chiefs. They, the quarterback took the wide receivers down to Texas and worked with them on their break. And what they were doing is they were preparing themselves for a season that they knew it wasn't just one game long with the end goal that we will make it to the Super Bowl and win this game. That's what they were doing. They were preparing to do that. And if you would look at them, it, you would say, looks like preparation definitely had an element of success in what they were able to achieve for that year. When you look at we prepare, whether it's you buy health insurance, you prepare whether for worst case scenario, you get sick, you prepare for, for retirement, you may have a 401k or invest in some stocks or different things like that because you don't, when you get to a certain age, you hope you're not living on the street. I'm just saying we live this principle over and over and again that we prepare ourselves so that way we do not, we do not fail. And when we think about that, and in looking at this letter in church in Smyrna, God is giving us an exhortation to be prepared for, or we will fail. And it may be an area of, of preparation that maybe you and I don't think a lot about because of just the nature of where we live at in the Western, we live in a Western society, we live in a, in a 
what I would call relatively peaceful United States. I mean, yes, we've had some things, but by and large, we're a pretty peaceful nation. And what we are dealing with this is being prepared to suffer. And by suffering, I don't, I don't mean the, well, pastor's suffering in Florida. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. Or we're not talking about, you know, you may have a physical ailment in your life. Um, you might have a financial difficulty that came out of nowhere. Some kind of problem that just been existing that's causing problems. I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about that suffering which... If we are going to be the church that Jesus Christ wants us to be, to be the salt and light for him in this world, then the natural result will be that suffering will be, will be the result of it. That if you're going to be the salt and light for Christ in this world, suffering is part of the package deal. See, when you get saved, I love to focus on the blood, the grace, and eternal life, but Jesus never dismiss the fact that those things are real, but just as real as they are is the reality that suffering is the part of the believer who follows Jesus Christ and will live their life for him. And when we look at this letter tonight to the church in uh, Smyrna, the, it is clear they are a suffering church. And as we look at this church, they suffered uh, greatly just for living out their Christian faith. And the suffering they experience may be nothing like you and I experience. And as I was reading this, it may be nothing like you and I experience. But I do believe that God has it there for this reason. It may be that not so much that we experience it, but we need to be a people prepared to experience it. We need to be ready for it. Because if you're waiting for the moment for it to happen then you are going to fail. If you do not prepare for what Christ says is inevitable, it is going to come. It's not a question of ifs, but it is going to come. If you make no preparation over here, then when this happens, you shall fail because you didn't make the preparation over here. That's why we have this letter here. And what we need to look at when we look at the, uh, this this church in Smyrna. Now, the church in Smyrna, and as we read here, it shouldn't come as, it's pretty obvious. This was not what I would call prime fertile ground for church planning. I, I mean, I, I mean, there's some places that you're like, man, that would be a good place to go start a church. When I read this letter and more I understand it, I'm like, that's not a good place to start a church. You know, in my eyes, I'm like, mm, maybe not so much. The church in Smyrna, it was, a, by worldly standards, it was a beautiful and a magnificent city. Matter of fact, it's such, the locality is so great that even it's where, uh, where it exists in Turkey is still around today. It's called by a different name. It's the third largest city in Turkey is where Smyrna is right now. It is that beautiful of a place. They say there's a, there's a giant hill in the middle of it. And then that the town was built around this hill and it looked, it looked like a crown and a castle right in, right in the center of this town. This town was new and modern in the sense that it, uh, the roads were all laid out in, a, in an organized pattern, which I guess for back then was a big deal. I mean, they, it, was a, 
it was a proud thing. We have straight streets. We have, uh, and in those straight streets, uh, uh, they had the, the beauty and the riches. They were basically having a beauty contest with other cities like Ephesus, who's going to be the prettiest and nicest city in all of Asia. And they had won the title of Flower of Asia. They, they were, they were a, a, a sweet fragrance that everyone else would, would want to smell. But as beautiful as they were, the town was, had a very ugly part to it. See, it was more than just the idolatry that they had in their town. Because these cities had a lot of idolatry. They had a, in their town, they had a, a, it was called the Golden Highway. It, ran, it was a golden street that ran through the whole town. One end they had a temple of Zeus and they had another temple to another god at the other end. And in between you had everything you would want to worship. And every god that was named, they had all those. But really that wasn't the, that wasn't the worst part of it. That's not what made it hostile. Because the church was existing in other places that had false gods, but they weren't experiencing the same thing that the church in Smyrna. Ephesus had a bunch of idolatry, but they weren't suffering the same as Smyrna. Something's definitely different that makes this uglier. Well, when you go to understand what happens in Smyrna, multiple times in their history, natural disasters had destroyed their city and flattened and ruined it out. Well, one, one of the times that the city was ruined, someone came in with a rebuilding effort. The, who came in with the rebuilding effort was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire said, we understand the significance of this city, this port city that a key to other areas in Asia here. We understand its importance and significance. So we are going to rebuild this city up. Now, if you were a member or a citizen of Smyrna or that area, the governments come in, they rebuilt all this, all this city for you, you would say they're probably going to be slightly patriotic. They're going to be patriotic and very zealous for their love and patriotism towards Rome. And it's witnessed in history. They were because one time the Roman Empire, they were out in battle and in a faraway country and their soldiers were cold and they needed more clothing and literally the citizens of Smyrna sent, took their clothes off and sent it to them uh, on the field there. That's how dedicated they were to Rome. But in their dedication to Rome, they had built a temple that no other place had built yet. They had built a temple that was called the Dia Roma. The Dia Roma was the female personification of the spirit of Rome. They literally built a shrine to Rome who is represented by this female goddess. That's who they were worshiping. They had, they had taken their patriotism up another level. They had taken it to the level of now actually worshiping the Roman Empire itself. But then it went even a step further in time because there was another competition going around. There's another competition going around that Smyrna won. And it was this, Emperor Tiberius wanted to be worshipped as God. And Smyrna won the, won the title to be able to have the center of the worship of Tiberius Caesar in their, in their city. 
And so they became the center hub of Caesar worship. And he said, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Other than this, that once a year then it was required of every person in Smyrna, they had to take a little pinch, just a little pinch of incense, go to the altar there at the Dia Roma there to uh, Tiberius Caesar or it would become just Caesar himself and they would sprinkle a little bit of that incense on there to burn to Caesar and they would have to say Caesar is Lord and then you would get a certificate, you would get a voucher that said I did this and so I could go buy, sell and trade, I could hold a job, I could function like a normal human being in, in Smyrna and that's all you had to do. And if you didn't do that, the consequences were great. And the reality is, under Rome, what had started as, okay, we tolerate the Christian faith, but the Christians were in opposition to this, so it eventually evolved into mandatory worship of Caesar or else. That's where this church is finding itself. In a, in a beautiful city, but very hostile and ugly toward Jesus Christ. Very ugly place. And you read what, what Jesus says in his testimony as he, as he looked in verse number 9. In verse number 9, he says, I know, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know what's going on. And when you read that, I want you to understand, Jesus is writing this by I know. He's not talking about intellectual knowledge like, okay, I, I, I got it up here. He said, I know personally. I've, I've experienced this. I know what you're going through. Jesus, the Bible says, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus said, I know what you're going through. I know, I know personally what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. I know to the minutest detail because he says in verse number 8, I was dead and now is alive. He didn't die of natural causes, folks. He died because he was put to death for proclaiming the truth that came from the Father. That's why he was put to death. And so he said, I know what you're going through. He says, I know you're going through tribulation. Now really that's the crux of almost everything else that falls. Because the word tribulation here is a very interesting word. There's more to it than just tribulation. It's not just seven years of bad times that we read about. That's, it's talking more than that. The word tribulation has the idea of pressure, extreme pressure. It has literally this word picture and I could only about imagine it. There is different ways you could execute a person. You know what one way they would execute the people? They would put a heavy stone upon their chest. And in time, the pressure would slowly just crush you and suffocate you and, and kill you. That's the word that's being used here. It's the same, the word tribulation that we have in the English comes from a Latin word that has to deal with millstones and being ground and being, being finally ground. And so that what Jesus is saying is, I know you are under extreme pressure right now. 
I know the pressure you are experiencing for none other reason that you've decided to put your faith and trust in Christ and you are trying to follow the faith once delivered to the saints. I understand what you're going through, the pressures. And I understand that the pressures that you're going through aren't just a random occurrence. This is something perpetual you've been dealing with over an extended period of time. And I am writing you to this letter, and it's very clear he's writing this letter because there were believers that were feeling that they were being ground to pieces. Because this letter is clearly a letter of encouragement. You don't need to have encouragement when you're on cloud nine. They are, disc they are, they are being ground underneath the heels of a, of a, of a culture that is centered on the worship of Caesar, and we're going to see that there's other things that were going on with them, that they were under the pressure of this society that's around them. And then it says that this pressure it was in this tribulation that they were going through. He says, and I know thy poverty. The reason why that they were poor, and I don't mean poor in the sense that I just didn't make enough on my paycheck to be able to buy to buy some food or pay for my bills. It has the same kind of poor that Lazarus had when he was at the rich man's gate begging for food. That kind of extreme poverty. The reason why they had that is very clear. They would not burn even a little bit of incense to Caesar. And so therefore, they, they were losing their jobs. They were having properties confiscated, they couldn't go down to the market and even go shopping for food. They literally, there were families that were starving, there were, there were people lost, losing jobs, people that were, their businesses were shuttered now. I mean, think, you couldn't buy, sell, or trade, and if you had a business and the government showed up and said, Where's your certificate at? And these, these Christians had enough character that they didn't make up documents. They just said, we, ain't, we don't got one, and we don't believe we should have one. And the result was their poverty. Now, I wish you would spend time on it, but Jesus did say, but you're rich. They had eternal wealth, but when it came to worldly speaking, they were, they were in bad shape. And not only were they in bad shape, he, talking, he talks about, I know the blasphemy that you're going through, those of the synagogue of Satan. Well, I'm going to tell you this. They had a problem with the, the Jewish sect there also in Smyrna. You, you see, the Jews had won a special place in Rome that they, that they didn't have to follow the edicts where they had to worship Caesar, that they could still worship and do their Judaism. Well, Christianity was too close of a cousin to Judaism, and they've had already experienced the heel and the boot of Rome before, and they said, we don't want that again. So you know what they did? They, they helped to contribute to turning in other believers. They did all sorts of things. They blasphemed them. They took the Lord's Supper, and they said, you know what they're doing? They're cannibals. They're eating flesh. They're drinking blood. You heard about the love feast? That means that they're practicing immorality and incest at their church. You, you hear that they won't worship other gods? They're atheists. And if they're atheists, that means they don't recognize Caesar as being God. So then they, you got to deal with them. They're traitors. They're treasonous. And, and, and they were spreading all of these things around about the believers. 
They were so much against the Christian believers there that there, there would come a time that one of the martyrs that took place, that they were looking for wood, and it was on the Sabbath day. It was on a Saturday. And you know who ran and got the wood the fastest? It was the Jews who went and got it. Men who were zealous about keeping the Sabbath were more than willing to break it to go grab wood to burn Christians on it. Jesus says, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm, I know the pressure that you're under I know the pressure that you are under and those things that, you're, that you are going through. But he said, I would sure love to tell you it's going to get better, but it's actually going to get worse. It's been bad, but I'm going to tell you this. You're going to be thrown in prison. And their prisons weren't the same functions as our prison. They weren't trying to rehabilitate people. They weren't trying to incarcerate people. It was just basically a halfway house between that and the, and being executed. And so many times, that was just the stopping off point before you were actually executed, put to death in various ways. You see, uh, Smyrna had a, one of the largest theaters in all of Asia. Could sit 20,000 people, could also fit a lot of wild animals and other things in there. And they destroyed, destroyed these believers at this very place. He said, I know you're I know you're going to be in prison, and I know you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for 10 days and be and put to death. Now, I, I, I believe this, that the 10 days are purely symbolic because they suffer longer than 10 days. There is a great possibility, and it can't be proven, but there was 10 different edicts given by Rome about dealing with the extermination of the believer. Ten different Caesars came down with it. Ten days. The reality is, he said, there is an extended period of time where you are going to suffer immensely for me. As much as you say, I know, I know your works, I know what you're going through, and I want, you, I want you to do this. I want you to understand it's going to get worse. It's not going get, to get better. Well, what are we supposed to do then? The Lord said this. Don't be afraid and be thou faithful unto death. Now, that seems weird to me. Don't be afraid. You just told me that we, you know what we're going through. We're going to be in prison. We're going to be put to death. But do not be afraid, but be thou faithful unto the end. In other words, this is not an event for quitters. He said, I want you to endure and I want you to hold on to. I want you to uh, endure and make it through these pressure-filled days that you are finding yourself in. And I think the church got the message. There's not a lot known about this church, but there's one thing that we do know about this church, and I'm going to do a little extended reading tonight, is this. I know this letter was written to the preacher in Smyrna. There's an extremely high probability we know who the preacher was in this church here. He was one of the Apostle John's disciples. He went to Bible college under the Apostle John. His name was Polycarp. One of the shining jewels of martyrdom for, for, Christian, for Christianity. And I just want you to listen to this testimony. 
He said, despite the cries of the crowd, the Roman authorities saw the, the senselessness of making this aged martyr. So when Polycarp was brought in the arena, the proconsul pled with him, curse Christ and I will release you. His reply was, 80 and 6 years I have served him. He had never done me wrong. How then, I can, how then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The pro-council reached for an acceptable way out. Then do this, old man. Just swear by the genius of emperor that that will be sufficient. His reply was, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you do not know who I am. Hear it plainly, I am a Christian. They continued to entreat Polycarp. Then the proconsul threatened him with wild beasts. And he responded with, bring them forth. I will change my mind if it meant going from worse to better, but not to change from the right to the wrong. The proconsul said, all right, I will have you burned alive. His response was, you threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. And then it says this is how he died. The fire was prepared. Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour that I might take a portion of the martyrs in this cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. They say they went to go light him on fire. I mean, imagine this. And just so you know, this is, the Jews were the ones that brought the wood for this fire. And they went to go light him. And they say that the winds came up so much that it was almost like a halo around him. They couldn't light him on fire. Eventually, because he wasn't burning, they, they stabbed him to death. So he would at least, that he would at least die. And so they went to silence the witness. They took the pastor out and they martyred him. And you think, well, how did the church respond to that? Well, historically, we know this. They wrote everything down in letters and sent it out to everybody else around them. They were like, we're not backing down from this at all. We are embracing, we are embracing this very thing. Now, let's go back to that introduction. If you, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. I would say that they were doing quite well in relationship to what was going on and what would go on and what we know did go on. Which would let me lead to believe they did not fail what I, and I don't believe they failed in the eyes of God because Jesus did not rebuke them. They were a sweet savor unto Jesus Christ. And I believe then if they did not fail, they were prepared and they were ready for it. Christ gave them, he warned them, told them what was going to happen. He said, this is, this is an inevitability. You're going to be in prison. You're going to be put to death. And they didn't say, well, you know what? Maybe we should just go plant church in a suburb somewhere. Maybe we should just move our church and close the doors. They said, nope, we'll just have extra services then. We'll try to have more outreach. We'll try to do, support more work for Jesus Christ. We are not changing anything at all. And so when I look at this, and what I want to get to is this. Is the historical reality of what this church went through, many times we could just look at it as in a historical perspective. But it's supposed to have a practical impact on our life. This is just not historical. It's meant to have a practical impact. You see, we are warned by Jesus Christ specifically, you will suffer 
You will be under pressure. You will be persecuted. Jesus said these words. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I don't know about you. There's zero ambiguity in what Jesus said. Because how did they treat Jesus? Man, it wasn't very pretty, was it? I mean, when you read about how they treat Jesus, doesn't that fire you up a little bit? Especially when they put the bag on his head and started punching him. Man, I want him to do something back, you know. But I'm just telling you this. When you look at what Christ went through and all this, he said, if I went through that, what do you think you're going to go through? If I didn't get off and I'm greater than, than all of you, and he is, he's greater than us. If I didn't get off the hook, what makes you think you're getting off the hook? If they didn't give the Son of God a free pass, then who do you think you are that you think you're going to get a free pass that if you decide you're going to actually have a productive life for Christ and a relationship with him that it's not going to create uh, suffering and pressure for you to live this way? Who do you think you are? And the reality is it, we all will. We're going to face this. This is throughout the scriptures. People who live for righteousness always suffered. You read about that. I don't think Joseph had a good time living for righteousness. That beginning part was slightly rough on him a little bit, don't you think? I, mean, I, 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 think, about, I think about three Hebrew boys and a prophet named Daniel. Man, things didn't work. Things got kind of hot for them. Things were very difficult for them. I read Hebrews chapter number 11. Brother Jacob was bringing out in the devotion this morning. I was like, hey, that's a good chapter. Because at the end of it, they're talking about being sawn asunder, being killed, being let out in the wilderness. You should read the end of it sometime. It's bad. It's the, the reality is. But the problem when we read this and why I think many times we're not getting the practicality out of this, even though we know these things are true, is I believe in our society there is a disconnect between what we read here and what we are experiencing. And I believe the disconnect is this. Is we read what's going on in Smyrna and it's bad. I mean the things that they're going through. They can't get a job. They can't, they can't even buy groceries. They are having their businesses shuttered. They're being imprisoned. They're being put to death. And, you, and all of those things, you know what? That's never happened to me. How many of you have been really been arrested just because you wanted to live your faith that you actually had your bible out and you were reading it and then someone called the authorities and they arrested you for reading your bible because those things did happen how many of you have ever ever been been uh, tortured because you decided to baptize uh your family because they got saved and baptized them in the name of the lord jesus christ and uh and you actually got in trouble for that. Probably not very many of us. Many of us have never lost the ability to be able to go down to, go down to Walmart or go out to eat somewhere. And we, we can order whatever we want, can't we? No one's ever said, hey, <laughs> did you just come from church? Sorry, we don't serve church folk here. We've never experienced anything like that. I think the, probably the majority of us, maybe one or two, maybe has maybe 
had an impact at their work negatively because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I don't think there's very many of us that have ever lost their job because we had a faith in Jesus Christ. They might have told you to tone it down a little bit, but they never said, we're going to terminate you. Maybe somebody in this room, maybe. But most of us don't do this. See, we are actually in a unique position in the Western world because this hasn't been the history of the church of Jesus Christ. They've been persecuted and hounded, and all over the world it still happens today. But the reality is we live in this little isolated bubble in this world in this time that we live in. And really, by and large, the Western world and what we know as the Western world and what we know in the United States, we don't know what this suffering's like. And there can be this disconnect. We read that and we're like, yeah, that's bad. But I believe that God has it here for us because he's saying, you see what, it, what happens? Do you see the pressure that comes from for living for Jesus Christ? I hope to God that we have a desire that says, I want to live my life for Christ. I want to let my light so shine before men. I want to be changed into his image. I want, to, I want to have the power of God resting upon me. I want my family to stand out. I want them to be unique, and I want them to be different. I want the world to know that I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to pinch incense to anybody else. If I'm going to do devotion and worship to anybody, it's going to be Jesus Christ. I think we will all want, want that very thing. I think that's where we're at. But the truth of the matter is, is this, there can be that disconnect that takes place here because we know, many times we don't know this level of suffering. But the truth is we need to be, we need to be prepared for it though. We need to be prepared and we need to be ready for it. You see, we're not so far away as maybe you realize. Because I remember some years ago when I was in Minot, we went to the church planning conference at Heartland Baptist Bible College. And they had this, this, uh, this black preacher there. He was amazing. Charles Hamilton. It, it was awesome. I think he broke his microphone. I'm not sure. I, he couldn't hardly keep it on. This guy was flailing. I mean, he burned about 5,000 calories, I think, preaching. It was, it was awesome. And then some years later, I heard about Charles Hamilton again. You want to know where I heard about him at? On Fox News. It was during COVID, they, and the city that he was in and the area was at, the mayor went out of control with his little mandates and edicts about what was acceptable and not acceptable during this COVID time. You could have this many people meet, and you had to meet this different way. So they never said you couldn't have drive-in church services. So Pastor Hamilton of King James Bible Baptist Church said we're going to have church services. They're just going to look differently. We're going to have outdoor church services here. And they parked their cars outside and they even distanced their cars from each other. And Pastor Hamilton was out there. He was preaching, but all the people had their windows up, but they could still hear him preach because he had a radio broadcast just for their property so the people in their vehicle could turn on the radio and hear the preaching that was, that was going on. And in the process of having this service, and it's recorded, that the police show up in force. I'm not talking about one squad car. I mean, it was a whole line of them, and Pastor Hamilton was right. We have more serious crimes going on, and you want to stop a church service? 
We have murders and other things going on, and you're worried about us following these guidelines and having a completely safe service in their eyes? And if they threatened Pastor Hamilton and his church that they did not go home, it's going to be a $500 fine for each car. That each person would get a $500 fine. That's not very far removed, folks. That's only a couple years ago. And you saw in COVID, in a moment, in an instance, that powers that could be were seizing it and were using it against even the church of God. And I, I'm just telling you this. There was more at work than a government oversight. There is an adversary who wants to stop the work of Christ. And if he could use COVID or any other epidemic or pandemic, he will use it, and he was using it. And that was a foreshadow. That's just a taste. That's just like I smelt something coming from the kitchen type event. See, we're not very far away from this. Oh, I've heard that it went all the way to the Supreme Court because of a Christian couple that wouldn't bake a cake for a gay couple because it said it violated their belief system. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of church. I'm not, even, I'm not even concerned because the fact of the matter is, is this, is if you ran a bakery and you were born again and saved and you were in the same spot they were, you would end ended up in the same spot. And not only did they go to the Supreme Court, they won, and when they started back again, they again went after them. Even after the courts had already said, you can make your, you can do what, it, you can follow your faith. Folks, we're not very far away removed, and we need to be prepared for this. Because I'm telling you this, we might not be over here at this extreme where we're being imprisoned and we're, we're being put to death, but can you not feel the pressure I feel like we're in that, you know, you ever, you ever have a pressure cooker at your house? You ever watch that? You know, I always remember my grandma's old pressure cooker and watching that little needle just go, go all the way up. And I feel like that's kind of where we are at right now. That that gauge, it's not on zero. It's just starting to creep up all the time. That if you're going to live for Christ, the pressures are going to continue to become greater and greater and greater. In our day and age, you go out there and declare that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That there is not a plurality of ways to make it to God. There is one way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And I'm going to tell you this. You're going to make some people not so very happy with you. We'll, we can suffer for that. You may be even at a, at a job and your bosses and your company says, this is what I want you to tell the employees or the customer that comes in and you know it's not true and factual and accurate. But he tells you, you need to do this for your job. There's pressure there as a Christian because we're to live honestly and soberly and righteously in this world. Young people, the people you're around, if you're in public school or even other people, you tell them, you know what? God has given me a special gift of my body and it's only going to be for the person I marry. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to be in all purity. I'm going to be able to give my spouse 100%. But I'm going to tell you this, that's not the message of the world right now. And they will pressure you and mock you 
and make fun of you. Like those were your, your those are ancient days. You got to go out there and you got to try these things and they'll make fun of you. You and I try to, maybe you're in an environment and ask someone, well, I don't really care for that kind of music. Would you turn that down? That, that, I just can't stand to listen to that. It's not what's pleasing to God. And see the feedback that you get. You see, we are in a pressure all around us. Trying to tell people that God only created two types of genders in this world. That there's only, there's only two. We don't have he, she, it, they, them, these, does, and whatever else Dr. Seuss came up with. We don't have all those. We just have he and she. That's all that it is. And you and I, it's easy to say, that's, that's great. But we are in an environment that that's, the pressure is on for us to be silent about those things. To be silent about the fact that God only wants a man to marry a woman and a woman to marry a man. Anything else outside of that is an abomination in the eyes of God. And he's not pleased with that. Pressure is on us. Pressure is on us to not witness to people because you have your truth and I have my truth. Don't go putting that down my throat right now. I do not want to hear that from you and, and uh, probably say words to you that we should never say and I won't say to you tonight. Pressure is on us. And the pressure is not going away. And you'll see that through scripture. This world is not creening into its better days it's going, it'll get continually worse. And where we are at as a culture and a society now, for many of us in here, and I'm only in my mid-40s, but I would have never dreamt we, were, we would be at where we're at right now, but we're there. And what was called good before is now being called evil. And what you represent in Jesus, in Jesus Christ is a blinding light to people who want to walk in darkness. And if you think the pressure is going to decrease it will not. You and I have to be prepared for the pressures that are already started, that are already at play. We need to be prepared because when you are put in those situations, when you are put in a situation that challenges your faith, whether you're going to stand for truth, whether you're going to compromise, whether you're just going to burn a little incense and I'm just going to get away with it just a little bit and I can still be with Christ and I'm going to compromise. I'm going to tell you this, we're in those situations. And if you're not going to prepare yourself for those, then you can fail, you can prepare to fail. You can prepare to fail. If you are not preparing now, and this goes from the eldest to our teenagers, that you have to prepare now. Now is the preparation period of time. It's not waiting till, it's, till I feel the pressure. It's not waiting till the pressure is on me. It's not when the rock is already on my chest and is squeezing the life out of me. Your preparation is before all of that. We have to be prepared then for the, for the suffering, uh, the suffering that, that is there. You see, Jeremiah said a very telling verse. And I love this verse because it really applies. He says, if thou hast run with footmen and they have wearied thee, then how can thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, 
then how will thou do in the swelling of Jordan? Do you understand what he's saying? God was rebuking Jeremiah. He said, this is easy peasy stuff right now. And you're already tired. You're already wearied. He was ready to pack bags. He was. He was ready. Man, this ministry stuff, I'm ready to quit. He was. And the Lord said, uh, you know, if you're already wore out, it's going to get a lot worse than that. Because the swelling of the Jordan, and the, he, was just gonna, he was telling him it's going to get worse. And you're already wore out now? And I think that's the, our lesson for us too is, is it, folks, this is easy right now, really. The pressures you and I experience right now for Christ, I'm going to tell you if I look at the letter to the church of Smyrna, I'm, we're low level. The needle's barely moving on the pressure gauge in comparison to them. But I'm telling you this, if you're already wearied and not preparing yourself now, then when the swelling of the Jordan comes, you won't be ready for it. There will be catastrophe. And so when we look at this, we have, to ask, we have to look at it and say, am I prepared? Am I in the position to, uh, and prepared for this? And I believe this, to be prepared to suffer. If we're going to be prepared to suffer, then we have, better have a plan to go along with that preparation. Because preparation really isn't... isn't um, spontaneous you got to decide okay there's some things that I should do to prepare myself so then my preparations are the right kind um, it's kind of like I know Cameron's in wrestling and, uh, and we used to always say in wrestling uh, practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes perfect and we need to have the right kind of practice or the right kind of plan in place if we're going to be prepared and when I look at what this church is being taught here, I believe it's this. If they were going to be prepared to suffer, they had to guard against becoming complacent in their lives. By complacent, it means to be self-satisfied and content. I Google searched this and this statement came up. It says, what is a complacent attitude? A complacent person is very pleased with themselves or feels that they do not need to do anything about a situation, even though the situation may be uncertain or dangerous. You see, I believe that Jesus didn't want the church in Smyrna to have a complacent attitude, but was instead of being complacent, he was wanting them to be proactive. I'm letting you know about these things. I do not want you to be complacent. And I think that's one of the number one things that the devil has used against us to make us ineffective as believers and as a church in this, in this period that we live in. It's this attitude of complacency. Because historically you've seen that persecution weeds out the weak and keeps us strong. It's just the fact of the matter. It made the church stronger. It made it healthier. It made it better even when it was being persecuted. And the devil, do you don't think he learns? He says, the easiest thing I can do is make it complacent, make it satisfied. Oh, it's nice we got a comfortable auditorium here. We got ourselves a good pastor. We got good offerings. We got all the we got all these nice things. Life's going pretty good for you. Maybe job's going all right. Family's doing pretty good, and all these things not really suffering any problems in your life, your Christianity really hasn't rubbed anybody the wrong way, and you're just happy and complacent where you're at. That's not what God wants from us. 
I think Paul's attitude was right. Even through everything he said, he kept saying, I'm pressing on, I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on towards a high mark of my calling, which is in Christ Jesus. He was pressing on the whole time. We need to guard against ourselves in this complacent attitude. Well, this isn't going to happen to me. This, I'll, I'll never go through any of these things that, that are going through uh, here. I don't know that you will or you won't. I just know that these things are promised to the church of Jesus Christ and they will endure these very things. And I have this idea, well, it's never going to happen to me. No, God is trying to say it can happen to you and, and you need to be stirred in, in your heart and mind in your relationship with Christ. That, that In other words, he's wanting a zealous people. If you are cold and indifferent and your heart's not stirred for the things of God now, I'm going to tell you this, when the fires and the sufferings do come up, you'll probably be the first one that will walk out the door and leave. You'll be the one that grabs a pinch of incense and says, oh, it's just a pinch and I'm just going to burn it here to Caesar and I can go back and do whatever I want and still have my job, buy, sell, and trade. Everything's all great and I still love God, but I just burned a little incense. But the heart that's zealous won't even compromise at that. They'll say, I'm not satisfied where I'm at. And if these things are a certain, I want to be as ready as I possibly could be for this event. I am not going to, I'm going to take my relationship with Christ serious. I'm going to, instead of just coming down to an altar and praying and, and this, I'm actually going to take what I prayed about here and I'm going to go home and I'm going to apply it again. And I, and I think that we maybe revive us again is really what we do need, is to break us out of our lethargy and, and our complacency. Because that's going to be a problem with another church, the Laodicean church. But we got to get out of our complacency and we got to be stirred. We got to have a heart that, that's zealous for, for the things of God. But I also believe this. That God would want us to be out of our complacency, but also there, there needs to be a consistency to our lives as Christians. See, unlike the other churches, Smyrna was one of two churches that didn't receive a rebuke from, from Jesus. And I, and I thought it was great because he said, I know all these things. I know what's going to happen. But you know what he knew, noticed about them? I know your works. They were being under pressure. They were suffering tribulation, and uh, they were being blasphemed. They were going to be imprisoned. They're going to be death. He said, "I know your works." In other words, they were consistent. They were what they were always. They didn't make a difference. It, what was going on and, and transpiring and taking place? They were consistent in their walk. It would have been easy for them to withdraw. It would have been easy for them, well, I won't talk about Christ as much. I won't pray in public as much. Maybe I'll read quietly my Bible somewhere else. Maybe I won't talk about what God's done for me in my life. Maybe I won't share how Christ saved me and changed my life. Maybe I just won't say those very things. But you know what? They were consistent about that. They were consistent, well, we're going to continue to, we're going to continue to do these things. We're, I believe that they probably said, well, you can't buy in our market. They said, well, that's fine. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I don't have to worry about what I shall eat, drink, or wear because God will take care of me. And I believe that they were the same day in and day out. They were consistent. You knew what they were going to be each and every day. 
And I tell you this, I'm thankful for the consistency of believers that are in this room. But I tell you this, do not be complacent with the consistency that you've had because it's something that you need to continue to develop and it needs to be strengthened. Your consistency needs to be maintained in your life. Because when you become inconsistent, when the pressures do come, what is consistent is your failure. But what I like is, you know one of the greatest stories of consistency in the Bible of a believer under persecution? Was the prophet Daniel. It's one of my favorite stories. They're like, this guy is such a holy roller. That's what these other governors are like thinking. This guy's a holy roller. I mean, he's in with the king. Everybody likes him. We cannot find anything wrong with him. What we'll do is we'll make a problem. We'll make an edict for 40 days you can't pray to any other god but the, but, but the false gods here. And we'll, we'll get him. We'll get Daniel. Why do they think they could get Daniel? Every single day, three times a day, he looked out his window and prayed towards Jerusalem three times a day. They knew that. That's how they concocted that law. You want to know why? Daniel was consistent. They passed the law. You know what Daniel did? He just said, oh, okay, that's nice. I'm still going to pray tomorrow morning, and I'll pray at noon, and I'll pray in the evening, and I'll keep doing that. And matter of fact, if you want to come check in on me, it's the same time every day. I'll be right where I'm at every single time. And you know what? God blessed him for that. He was delivered from the lions. And I'm just telling you this, a consistency in your walk and your relationship with Christ. Not being on one day and being off the next day. I'm telling, I'm not saying perfection either. I'm talking about people that are zealous, that are consistent, that are saying, you know what, I'm going to continue to do this day in and day in and day in and day in. And what I will continue to do these things in, in in my life. You see, Because that consistency is not just for you. The consistency is for those who follow after you also. Because we might not be the church that suffers. We might not be the church that's imprisoned or put to death. But who's to say the next generation of this church or the next church plant or the one 40 years from now is not going to be that church? And where are they going to look for the example from from us who are consistently walking with God right now. You see, when I was studying this, you know a song, this song came to my mind. It's the song, Find Us Faithful. And in that chorus it says, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we lead, lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. That, my friends, is the purpose of consistency is not just, not just for you, but for those who will follow behind you. Because obviously that's God's intent or we wouldn't even be preaching this message tonight. Because the Smyrnans laid an example for us to follow. And then I believe this, that God definitely wants us to be committed. Being faithful unto de- death takes consistency, but it is also a committed choice. And Christ, they were committed to Christ. He reminded them what they have. He, he said, you will overcome the second death. I, I know what you're going through. I am dead, but I am alive. I've experienced those very same things. And he's trying to tell them, don't, don't quit. Okay, I'm with you in this. 
and I'll be through just like I was in the fiery furnace. I'm going to be with you in this. But you have to make a committed choice. You have to, when, when you are pressured for your walk in relationship with Christ, no matter how big or how small it is, you need to make a committed choice. I asked someone if I could use this illustration, and they said I could, and I would just be vague about the details of it. But we were at a, a little gathering on, on Friday night with some other homeschoolers and those type of things, and had a great, great time. And then at the end of it, I was kind of off to the side, and I saw this one uh, other parent talking to uh, another, another parent. So I was just observing from the sidelines here. And uh, I guess there's this um, homeschool prom that's going, going on. And, um, and I, could, I could see, where the, I knew where this was going, and they had a daughter. And they said, well, could so-and-so go to prom with, with her? And the other parent, who is obviously trying to walk and have a relationship with Christ, I mean, I just saw the instant countenance change on her face, like, how am I going to answer this kind of question? Because I knew what she was, I had a relatively sure idea what she was thinking that is this really what Christ would want us to be involved in? Is this really representing Christ in an activity that's celebrated by the world? That's celebrated with indecency and immodesty? I'm, I'm sorry if you go to prom. I'm not saying you're an evil person, but I'm saying this. I don't know where that falls in the realm of living for Christ. I don't know where you could dance with a person of the opposite sex and remain pure in your thought and heart at the same time. I don't know how you would ever do that. I don't know how you could move your body to music in a way that God never intended your body to move. I don't know how you would do that. And I'm sorry if that's something you involve yourself in, but I'm also not sorry at the same time. Because I could tell in that moment, here is a question. My commitment for Christ is being challenged right here, right now. I have a choice. I don't have to be obnoxious about it. I don't have to say, bless God, the fire is going to fall down. If you go to something like that, I, I'm getting in my vehicle. I'm getting out of here because I can't even believe you asked that question. But we can answer the truth in love and, and give a reasonable answer by the hope that's given to us in Jesus Christ. We can say this, you know, I was reading the Bible, and God says to abstain from all appearances of evil. And I don't think I could go there and live in good conscience to what God's word says there. That I'm supposed to be the salt and light of the world and to witness to other people. I don't believe that's the environment Christ would want me to be in to be the salt and light to other people. See, it was a challenge of commitment. You can see it in our face. And we are challenged to be committed to Christ each and every day for what we believe in and what we stand in. And in whether, again, whether you're the oldest or especially, I think, of you teenagers, the pressures you are under, it's easier to quit now. It's easier to compromise. It's easier to lie. It's easier to hide your testimony for Christ right now. But if you start doing it now, it will become a habitual habit for you 
and people won't even recognize you years from now that you ever even grew up in a Christian home. Because you decided, I do not want to, and I do not want to face this pressure and it's easier for me to yield to it than to commit myself to Christ. That's why they're bringing you to college days. That's why they bring you to camp. Because the people that are bringing you there know exactly what you're going to face and what you're going to go through. And they're trying to get you right now to say, I don't care if I'm in a, even in a public school environment. I do not have to cow and I do not have to submit myself to you. I have to answer to God. And I have to answer to my conscience. But really, what we see in an obvious microchasm for teenagers is what we experience on a larger scale for us as adults. So when we look at this tonight, I have to ask, are you prepared to suffer for Christ? And are you being proactive or will you be reactive when facing suffering? There's one part of the story about Polycarp that I didn't share with you that's remarkable. See, when they were leading Polycarp into the arena, there is a voice that came out of nowhere. And all those that heard it said it came from heaven. And those, and it was recorded by multiple witnesses. So I believe it happened. And the, and the, and the story was this, this voice from heaven said, Polycarp, play the man. Play the man. And in other words, in today's vernacular words, man up. Okay, Polycarp, you're in a bad spot. You're in a bad position. The pressure's on. Man up. Square your shoulders back. Look at it in the face. You embrace it. You don't avoid it. And what you're going to do is you're going to testify for me. You're going to play the man. I know in our woke culture that's not right to say play the man, but I'm just telling you this. We all need to play the man. We need people that will say, I'm gonna, I am going to be prepared for whatever comes my way. I'm going to square my shoulders back. I, I, I'm going to face this. I, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm scared to be a Christian. I'm scared to be a witness. I'm, I, I'm scared to let other people know what I believe. And I, I'm not going to live in that fear. But I'm going to be one that's going to have a, a, a boldness about me. Not obnoxiousness, but a boldness and a, and a confidence. I'm going to play the man for Christ. Regardless of what it's going to cost me, I will play the man. And it may be tonight, it's time to play the man. Play the woman. Play the father. Play the mother. Play the teenager. It's time we do what God is, tells us to do. Prepare ourselves to suffer by being encouraged to stand up and to face, getting ourselves prepared and ready. Because may I tell you this tonight? If you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. If you fail in your preparation, now I'll mark it down, prepare to fail. All right? Let's go ahead and stand. We'll bow our heads and we'll have a time of invitation here. Lord, I do thank you for the chance to look at your word tonight. And uh, God, I appreciate the attention to your word. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would just use this time here. God, we are under an immense 
amount of pressure already, but really in light of it, it's nothing great and it's just going to get greater, God. So, Lord, I would pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts. Are we prepared? Are we planning to face suffering in our lives? Are we prepared to suffer? Oh, God, I just pray now that you'll work in this invitation and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.